Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Spencer Thompson, who's the founder of the career assessment tool, So Can You, which sold to Penn Foster in 2021. But before we get there, there was a presentation that was referenced during today's episode with Spencer, where he talks about why does your company exist? And it was a bit of a funny moment, as you'll hear, Spencer is quite self-deprecating. But the presentation itself, I think you'll find quite interesting. So I have found it and linked it in the show notes section over at builttosell.com, along with a variety of amazing book recommendations shared by Spencer in today's episode. Quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. We recently learned that about 40% of people who listen to Built to Sell Radio aren't subscribed. So if you wouldn't mind subscribing, it truly helps our show grow. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Spencer Thompson, who in 2012 founded So Can You, which, as I mentioned, was a career assessment platform aimed at replacing the outdated tests that existed at the time. Now, So Can You's Career Explorer became one of the most prominently used platforms in North America, being adopted by the U.S. government, top colleges around the world, and had millions of users using it every year. Now, during today's episode, I want you to look out for how to utilize dominance theory to prop up the value of your company, how to see patterns in historical data that you can capitalize on, how to discover the hidden value inside your business, how to determine what terms are negotiable when selling your business and what terms aren't, and how to define why your company exists. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold So Can You back in 2021 is Spencer Thompson. Enjoy. Spencer Thompson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me quickly the founding story. This all goes back to high school. I mean, shockingly, it goes back to high school. So I grew up in the Niagara region on the Canadian side, right, really close to Niagara Falls. And in grade 12, or as you call it in America, 12th grade, um, I started asking all my friends what they wanted to take in university. And they kept saying health sciences at the same kind of one or two places. And I found that very perplexing because I had never heard of anybody wanting to go into health sciences. And I used to want to be a physicist growing up, and I should not be a physicist, but I used to want to be a physicist. And they, um, so I said, okay, well, where'd you get health sciences from? And they said, well, the guidance counselor told me there was a lot of money in pharmaceutical sales. So I should really go into that. And this kind of like spread like wildfire. And a meaningful percentage of our class ended up still, you know, studying health sciences. And I was like kind of shocked that this kind of dogmatic approach to choosing education or career was in some ways the kind of primary methodology that people had for doing that. Um, and I hadn't really given it much thought. And so the year after high school, I actually didn't go to college. And I read a whole bunch of books on really human development, but in particular career development, you know, the, the kind of theory and the history of, of how career development came to be post-World War II around assessments and encyclopedias and taxonomies, and then struggled, frankly, to start a business around this. The, the whole core concept was, how could you help people find their ideal career through really learning a lot about themselves, using data, which at the time was a big deal, right? Like the Spotify, Netflix, Amazon recommendation model was all the rage at the time. And so how could you do that for careers? And really I didn't know what I was I doing. I think I actually took a survey like yours. I mean, I was in high school 
30 odd years ago, embarrassingly to admit, but like, I think my guidance counselor gave me a questionnaire to fill out and, you know, it said, oh, you should be a fireman, a, a lawyer, you know, like it was very, very rudimentary, <laughs> but this, what you created was a much more sophisticated version of that, right? We, tr- we tried. I mean, in many ways, what you went through is one, one of the realizations that I had, and you're getting, I think, the core of the origin story, which is most of the career assessment technology that was built in the 1950s, which was really for sorting military members back into the workforce, right? So we had millions of military members all around the world. In the States in particular, you know, how do you kind of reemploy these people into becoming firemen or, you know, biologists or whatever else it is? So we built all this technology to do that. And what I realized doing the research back in 2012, 2011 around this was that is the exact same infrastructure that exists today. So that same assessment that you took 30 odd years ago, I virtually guarantee is the same assessment today. And so what we try to say is if you were to start one of those assessments today in 2012 and not in 1970 or 60 or 50, what would it look like? And there's kind of three core principles, right? The first is it would use data. So every incremental person that took an assessment would make it smarter. Because we could use their data on what, what career they used to be in, what career they're in right now, what they want to be in, and whether they're happy or not. So nobody ever asked that question. Like, are you actually satisfied in the career that you're in? It's the first bucket. The second bucket is design. So the whole thing was mobile first. You could answer all these questions. It was like three, 400 questions on your phone, which is an enormous amount of you know, work to do. We tried to make the experience really pleasant. And the third thing was actually to make it real time. So you actually get feedback as you're doing the assessment. The assessment that you took probably, you answered all these questions. And then you got this like generic list of results at the end. We literally gave you called results to the office. Yeah, to just be like, hey, we think you should be doing this. We're going to tell your parents right. that. Like, it's kind of ridiculous, right? So yeah, totally. we tried to really reinvent that. That's awesome. It's it's a it's it's fascinating to hear what you did, and I'd love to know the business model behind it. So what what how did you make money? Well, I mean, to be transparent, it was actually the number one issue with the company the entire time it existed was on the surface, we, we actually had real growth. I mean, the service was and is used by tens of millions of people. And, you know, I think it's probably the largest career assessment or the lar- largest occupational tool in the United States. Um, and so in terms of its fulfilling its mission of to help people find their ideal career, you know, never got, you know, you can never really get towards 100% of that, but it really got towards that from a growth perspective. You know, and to be honest, like we toy with all sorts of business models. We toy with a version of premium from a consumer standpoint, so people would pay for kind of premium reports. We actually built a whole enterprise business around this. So actually like talent analytics for companies to select better people and optimize their internal talent. We actually sold that business. We actually bought a business. Um, so while in, in the history of this, we actually bought a whole other company focused on career and college planning for K to 12 districts it's all around the country. Um, and, you know, I don't think we ever really figured out the right model. We had a, we had a fascinating data business. And really, that's what it, we, we're really a, a supply side kind of labor database. But typically, when you think about these businesses, revenue does lag behind kind of this growth. But I don't think we ever fully got there. That's not to say there wasn't revenue. I mean, there was revenue in the business, but not to the degree that you'd like want to see in usually a venture backed company. Where did the revenue come from, albeit limited? Um, so about half of it came from individuals wanting to upgrade their account. So we had a free tier, which was very kind of healthy. And then we had a, pay, a paid tier that was largely focused on um, advanced analytics around them as people. So understanding why they matched. So it's almost like the uh, the difference between free and paid was what you matched to was free and why you matched to it was paid. That was about 50%. And the other 50% was from universities. So a bunch of universities, NYU, University of Texas system, 
Princeton, et cetera, all use the tool for their, if you're a career counselor, for example, and somebody walks into your office, you know, as opposed to using these kind of older assessments like you're describing, you would use us instead. So we charged a, you know, fairly nominal amount of money for that. Um, and then there was a little bit of government work that we did too. So that was kind of the, the mix. It sounds like there's a lot of deep technology. And as you point out, mm-hmm. revenue never got optimized and it always lagged sort of the, the user growth. So I'm reading between the lines saying this was an expensive business to finance. Probably not something a 20-year-old kid can finance on their own. So like, how did you get the money to do this? Uh, I mean, the, the short answer is just making a lot of mistakes, right? So I didn't did know you raise money? Wanting. We did. We ended up raising, over the history of the company, we raised roughly $12 million, $12, $13 million. So we, we raised did- real capital. How did you value the company without any sort of benchmarks for revenue? Like, how was how were the investors valuing it? So I have a little bit of a different approach to how I think about this this problem than I think a lot of people do. I think when you think about traditional industries, railroads, oil, infrastructure, etc., multiples of EBITDA or multiples of revenue make all the sense in the world. And you have these different vectors you can pull on. Right, growth is one of those vectors. Profitability and kind of raw unit economics is one of those vectors. But technology companies in particular, whether people agree or disagree with this, are valued differently than that. Um, so you think about like a WhatsApp being bought for $19 billion with 20 employees, right? Why? And they actually had the wrong business model at the time. They're charging a dollar per year uh, to use the app, which Facebook got rid of. What? Why? Well, really the reason behind a lot of these acquisitions is actually dominance theory. So if you want to become dominant in your market, there are certain assets that actually have to fit into place. Um, in the case of WhatsApp and Instagram, to use the kind of meta example, those were both purchased not for revenue reasons. And you can argue that Instagram is one of the greatest acquisitions of all time. I think that's probably true for a lot of different technology companies. I would also say there's another vector that matters a lot. We've all heard of this term aquahire. And the reason why aquahires matter in our ecosystem is it turns out it's very difficult to build high quality product. And I think about building a company as a set of things that you have to de-risk over time. And each time you de-risk a part of the business, you actually increase, we'll call it the local maximum of that business. Meaning you could theoretically sell it for more at that point. So you have a valuation pump. So if you think about it just without going into extreme detail, I have an idea or you have an idea. We want to start a business. How much is that business worth? Probably not very much because like, you know, you just have an idea and that's it. Now, if you're Steve Jobs and you want to start a business, well, that idea is probably worth a lot of money because there's a lot of proxy value behind that. But if you're just me, you want to start a business, probably worth $0. So the first stage is I need capital in order to test the, the thesis behind my business. So I go and do that. I test it. I build a, an MVP. I hire one or two people and I ship a product. Well, is that worth something? Yeah, it probably is. Because I can now, I've now shown that I have the ability to take an idea and ship something out of that. The next stage is, can I build a team that actually supports the growth of that thing? Then you have a user growth model. Then you have a revenue model. Then you have a scaling model. Then you have a dominance model. Each one of those stages, if you can get to irrefutable proof around that point, the company is worth more and more money. And sometimes, by the way, the metric that proves that out is revenue. In a lot of cases, it isn't. There are companies that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars that have built the best possible team on the planet without a cent in revenue. And that is so just the way it, that hypergrowth works. So Spencer, how did it work at So Can You? Mm-hmm. Like, what were those benchmarks for you? And how did investors sort of improve their valuation in lockstep? Yeah, so we, um, so we raised, our, our kind of history was, we kind of, this took a long time, right? So we're, we're not talking about an up and to the right, this is all honky-dory business. I think this is much more realistic, like maybe look inside of how um, tech companies really work, which is we raised roughly $300,000 back in 2012. 
that came from a consortium of angel investors um, led by a psychometrician, somebody who actually measures people for organizations. Um, so kind of domain expertise, not applied to technology, but incredibly smart, incredibly successful in the space, along with some professional angel investors. The valuation of that business at the time was very low. Like if you think about like what Y Combinator is investing in companies in, we'll call it roughly around that, maybe, maybe less than that. Um, and so they're valuing basically me and the ability to figure things out. And by the way, investing in a 19 or 20 year old who's never built a business before is not worth very much money, especially in 2012. How much of the company did you have to give? How much did your company, did you have to give up for 300 grand? Um, 15 odd percent, 15, 20 percent, something like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, every fundraise that you do roughly is 15 to 25 percent of the business, right? And there's just cases where it's 10 percent, there's cases where it's 30 percent. But like, I think most healthy fundraisers are selling. And people have to like also think about like, you're not giving up that part of the business, you're creating new equity. And so it's not really about like, yes, there's dilution, but it's actually around price per share. People kind of, when when you trade public stocks and you buy you know a stock for a bunch of money, private companies work the exact same way. You know, public companies can issue new stock and dilute the value of the existing stock, which just decreases the per share value. It's kind of the same thing. So like, I would I, I'd say okay, well you're selling fifteen twenty percent, but you're really like, are you actually increasing or decreasing the value of the shares? Which you know, we were kind of flat. So we did three hundred grand. Then we raised another million and a half. Call it a year and a half later. Then we raised kind of another million bucks. Um, in kind of bits and pieces. And then I think we raised two and a half million in a kind of a proper seed-ish type round. That was maybe five years into the business. And then we raised another five, six million dollars after that. I mean, those numbers are not 100% accurate, but they're pretty close. Got it. Knowing what you know now, having gone mm-hmm. through lots of different iterations on the financing, mm-hmm. what would you do differently if you could go back to 2012 as it relates to specifically raising money? Well, I mean, I think I now run another company um, that's in the cybersecurity space. We just closed a Series A, it was $24 million in December. Um, so I, I mean, in some ways being able to do this a little bit differently now, I would say that 2012 and 2020, 2021 are very different times to raise capital. Um, the maturity of the market is very different. And by the way, I'm not sure how applicable this is to the audience, but like there's all sorts of different types of capital raises, right? You can raise capital from friends and family, from angel investors, from professional investors, from venture capitalists. Those, those are all different structures and different kind of concepts and there's debt, you know, so we can talk about all those things. You know, I, I was incredibly naive across the board, right? So I didn't really understand, um, you know, what kind of signal certain kinds of investors sent. I didn't really under, understand the terms. Well, give me an example of a, of, a, of, a, of a signal that an investor might send to you today that you now can listen for. You've got the signal and the noise on that. Whereas in t- when you were 20, you didn't, you didn't know. I think the greatest investors in the world know that the reputation is the most valuable asset that they hold, right? So a lot of investors put a lot of terms, legal terms into investment documents, right? To protect themselves. Something called liquidation preference, which is who gets paid out first and how much they get paid out. There's all these different terms that, that exist. And, I think what you'll find is in, in some ways it's the opposite of what people think. People think about like the best investors in the world. They think they're the biggest sharks. They're the toughest to negotiate with, whatever. I actually think that it's the opposite. I think that they actually have the cleanest term sheets, the cleanest terms overall, because they know that what they're trading on is reputation. And what I, what I learned in my first company was, you know, a lot of times these terms are not as clean as you would hope because, you know, maybe the company isn't as good as it needs to be. Maybe the investors aren't as good as it. Like 
the market has an interesting way of sorting that matching process out. And when you don't really know what you're doing, you're kind of figuring that out. I would also argue that the Canadian ecosystem is actually quite different than the American ecosystem in terms of raising capital. I'm happy to kind of expound on that. But like, it was much less mature than the American system. But I, I, like, I didn't go through, for example, an incubator. I didn't go through a Y Combinator or a Techstars or one of these different types of programs where you're really kind of de-risking some of those things by saying, hey, we have a reputation around this. Don't screw our, our companies. It was just little old me trying to put together some money. Got it. So signals, obviously, the reputation of the investor is going to be important both to them and to you as the as the entrepreneur. What else have you learned to avoid through the process of raising money? Like what other terms have you discovered in in the in the interim that you're like, wow, why did I sign that? Well, I mean, I've been very lucky that I've tried to seek out people that have done this before and it really helped along the way. We brought in a CEO um to soak in you back in 2017, who had been very successful on a prior exit and really taught me a lot about a lot of different things. Um, so it helped a lot with this too. I think there's like obvious ones, like, you know, control provisions, vetoes, things like that. Like the ability to basically not run the company that you're, you're built to run. Like, look, I think in some ways the job of a board is to fire or hire a CEO. So like that's, I think that's in some ways par for the course. But there's lots of, of onerous terms around blocking sales of companies. Um, there's terms around what kinds of capital you can raise, and th- this gets complicated because it depends on the kind. You know, there's difference between equity, convertible note, safe structures, all these different things. So I just think like there is a market standard of terms that kind of actually fluctuates. Like by the way, market standard terms in today's world, which is July of 2022, is different than January of this year. Like literally, they've changed because market compression has happened, and so more leverage has shifted to investors. Like it's actually more of a leverage piece than there's anything else. So I would say like there's like the obvious ones are just these onerous control terms. The things that end up becoming more negotiable are things like liquidation preferences. So who's getting paid when, how much they're getting paid, um, board control, so what your board is structured like, for example. Uh, compensation actually is interesting, whether there's caps on compensation for CEOs. Um, but you know, I think it also depends on really the kind of business that you're running. Like running a real estate company is very different than running a a venture back startup, which is very different than running, you know, a mom and pop business. And, and none of those are better or worse. They just have different financing terms that matter to them. I watched a YouTube video with you describing the five motivations that mm. entrepreneurs have. Would you mind describing those and telling me, you know, it, you, you were candid in that, that video about uh, kind of waffling between your reason for uh, starting so can you and running so can you why it exists and I'd love for you to just touch on those I think you're referring to the philosophy that was a horrible presentation I can't believe you watched that but I appreciate you doing it um, I, don't remember, <laughs> I will put I don't it in the show notes that. just to make sure everybody sees it now that's <laughs> no, horrible um, I don't remember all five of those I, I remember the general concept which is you know effectively you have this defining purpose of why you set out to build a business and that philosophy in some ways governs the kinds of investors that you have the kinds of employees you attract and everything else I think some of the examples I gave is like, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, is very focused on, you know, compounding returns, which makes perfect sense. Like they don't, they don't pretend to be solving the world's problems. They pretend to be returning capital at 90% a year. Okay. So that, that's, it's very easy to know who you're going to attract and not for that reason. Whereas like a Tesla is different than a Pixar. So Pixar and Illumination, for example, will monetize happiness. Like Minions just had the highest July 4th opening of all time. Why? They literally 
designing happiness for people. It's an amazing business model. Yes, the business model is actually selling tickets, blah, 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 and IP and all. Yeah, like, sure. But it's not really. The atomic unit is actually creativity and happiness production. It's a fascinating business. Disney's the same thing. So, like, that governing philosophy um, changes a lot. And for us, I think what you're getting at with the So Can You one is, like, we had always been driven by this kind of very focused social mission. And the social mission was to help people find their ideal career. And that kind of, and that's what I mean when I said at the beginning, like the mistake that I made of building the business was there was never a business model attached to that. Like if you listen to the, that statement, you know, part of the challenge of building these companies is that there's different vehicles that exist. There's a reason why there's nonprofit versus for-profit. I mean, there's books sitting behind you. Why did you write a book? It's a vehicle for communicating something to try and solve a problem. There's no right or wrong answer to these things. And sometimes you build a for-profit business in a different structure. I mean, sometimes it's a benefit corp, sometimes it's a you know a C corp, whatever. Those are vehicles for accomplishing missions. And so I don't think that we ever did a very good job of defining the business model up front. Where if this works, what does the business turn into? And so I think this, the mission was actually very aligned, and I think the social piece was there. I just think it was hard to kind of tie all that together. You, so so can you in your mind was a social had a social mission. Yeah, um, to help people get into jobs that were a great fit for their you know disposition and driving up their you know mental health and their happiness and so forth. Yet you brought in when you raised twelve million dollars of financing a lot of sharks who have none of the same missions. I mean, those investors they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to maximize their return. And mm-hmm. sometimes that doesn't necessarily jive neatly with a social mission. Like, am I reading between the lines or was there a lot of conflict associated with like why we exist as a company? No, I mean, yes and no. I don't, I mean, there was never a lot of conflict to be, to be clear. Um, and one of the reasons was we went out of our way to really get impact investors as the main cohort of investors. So if you look at the vast preponderance of that capital, it was, family offices, individuals, or funds that were education or impact funds. And so they, by definition, have a blend between social returns and um, you know fiduciary responsibility. Now, we can debate whether that balance should be 50-50 or 90-10. There's all sorts of fascinating things that's beyond my pay grade to have an opinion on. But I do think that it's not like we went to a purely financial return group and said, hey, here's a business. We're going to be Berkshire Hathaway. And then secretly, I went back to the team and said, hey, here's a social mission. Like, oh, you know, we were very transparent about that. We tried to find investors that aligned around that um, from day one. But you were on a social mission. And I'm curious to know what triggered you to want to sell So Can You. Again, you're a young guy. I could see you running it for 30 years if it was this big mission. So why sell so young? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for nine years, nine or 10 years, right? So even though I was young, I was, you know, I guess I was 20 and an idiot when I started it. Um, I don't, I think that this is why it's such a fascinating show that you have and such a fascinating question is there's no, there's no uniform answer to this. I think if you ask most entrepreneurs in year one or year two and you say, hey, would you sell this company for a made up number? They're all going to say no. I mean, it's going to change the world. This is worth at least $300 trillion, blah, 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 right? Like there's always the same version of that. I, by the way, I said the same thing. I think you sell for a number of reasons. Some some investors or some some entrepreneurs sell because they're tired and they just don't want to do it anymore. Um, some in, some entrepreneurs sell because the equity value sitting inside of another vehicle actually has a better chance of success than the equity sitting inside of their vehicle. That's usually done in stock deals, right? You can pay for deals with all cash. You can pay for deals with all stock. You can pay for deals with a blend of those things. 
The reason why stock matters is because you're basically just trading your equity for another equity. It's actually, actually that, that's very simple calculus. It's, I think that that vehicle is a better vehicle for solving the mission than ours. And there's lots but of reasons why, for that. But why did you sell? Well, I think it was partly the latter thing I just said. I think we had found a vehicle, largely from an impact perspective, that had a better chance of succeeding than we did independently. You lost me there. So you mean you, you identified another business you wanted to go start? Or no, no, meaning, that... no, meaning we, even though we raised real capital, we always were constrained resource wise by what we wanted to do. The team never got to be bigger than 20 odd people. And so we were constrained in terms of depth of relationship with, you know, whether it's business model partnerships or anything else. And so we got approached by a group and that group had a very, very aligned social impact mission. And this we thought that that vehicle. It was Ben Foster and, and their owners. Um, but we'll just call it Penn Foster. Penn Foster is the largest online school uh, in the United States. Um, it's a fascinating company. It's been around for over 100 years. Very focused on middle skills, middle income uh, workers in America, very aligned with what we did. And so when you think about pairing the largest online school in America with this very large occupational engine, you know, the, the only real question at that point was, does the equity value of that thing combined make more sense than staying independent? And the answer to that was yes, internally. So like, there are other factors, I'm sure, that go into people's decisions to sell, but ours wasn't that much more complicated than that. So you, I'm going to read between the lines and said, you were feeling kind of constrained to have a bigger impact with this company. And mm -hmm. Penn Foster came along, it's private equity backed. Mm -hmm. um, sort of shareholders came along and said, you know, I think one plus one equals three here. If you join us, yeah. we can use your assessment tool across all of these tens of thousands of students. And that's going to have a huge impact on the world. Exactly. Ex yeah. And I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Like that, that's largely the calculus. And then the math comes out of that and you have to figure all that stuff out. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still wondering about the, the financial stuff. Um, you strike me as as somebody who is not particularly motivated by money. Am I accurate in that assessment? I am particularly motivated by what money enables you to do. Right. So money is a resource that can translate into all sorts of different things, and I think like to not what? value that is, I mean, for me. Um, there's a combination of things. I have ambitions to start things in the nonprofit space. I now run another company that's raised, you know, quite a bit of money in the cybersecurity world. Um, you know, yes, there are base need to get need to get met internally, but like, am I the kind of person that's going to go out and buy 65 houses and boats and stuff? No, like, I'm not pers I don't personally need much stuff, but I do believe that like people that have access to resources have the ability to start to shape things in our environment in ways that people don't. And by the way, like you've seen this more than I have, like very often people that are incredibly kind human beings that want to make a difference end up spending the vast proportion of their time raising capital. And it, it just, it erodes an enormous amount of time from people who actually want to go and do things. And so having access to those resources certainly makes that, that life easier. But am I driven as that being the primary motivating factor? No, I'm not. Got it. So, Penn Foster comes along and says, one plus one equals three. Let's do this. Where does it go from there? Uh, so we uh, have conversations with them. I mean, I've known, I've known the folks from Penn Foster for a long time. So this wasn't like an out of the blue thing. Like I had been close with a lot of their leadership for a long time. 
um, we had entered into a period, because I can't go into details, but like we had entered into a period of exclusivity, started talking to them, we consummated a deal in early 2021, um, and then started to kind of integrate the companies. When you entered into exclusive deal, did you shop at elsewhere? Were you tempted? No. 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 We were very focused on the one plus one equals three thing. I think the reason why that matters a lot is because you're not running a process. Like, by the way, just in the effort of full transparency, we had run a process to sell the company a couple of years before this. We had thought about running the company or selling the company. Um, and so that was more of a like, hey, is there kind of a local maximum question here? And this was much more of a like, there's a holistic meshing of things that make a lot of sense for us. What was your experience like shopping the company? It was fascinating. I never did it before. We actually hired an investment banker um, in the education space. We put together kind of a, a presentation. I, I, would, I, I wouldn't say it got as far as we wanted it to. Um, this was in 2016, 2017. We instead decided to raise capital instead of selling the company, which I think, by the way, that happens all the time. I think people... Kind of have these two options and they decide between them do i stay private and continue to grow the business do i exit at this point we were kind of faced with one of those things we decided to to raise capital from impact investors and so then it was another call it three odd years until we sold sold company got it got it when you structured the deal with pen i'm assuming there was some kind of earnout component or some sort of holdback mm-hmm. that would, would yep. incentivize you to sort of stay on and help with the integration. Can you get into any details there about what the, the structure and, and how that looks? I can't go into details around that. All I can say is like we did have a component of that um, that was tied to a couple of goals, and those goals were mostly product development and some revenue goals. And I think, I think earnouts are structured in kind of different ways depending on the deal. Sometimes they're purely revenue-based, sometimes they're retention-based, which is complicated for other reasons. But ours was a, uh, yeah, it was kind of a combination of things. And we had put that as structured in the deal and that was part of the negotiation. Yeah, yeah. And how did you think about those elements? Because a lot of private equity buyers choose not to use an earnout. Instead, they yep. use like an equity hold, you know, an equity rollover and ask you, hey, like we'll buy 60, 70% of your company, but we want you to roll another 30. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have any visibility into why they chose to use an earnout as opposed to having you roll equity? Um, not particularly. I think the funds that had acquired Penn Foster were fairly new, both of them. And so I, I can't speak to you know, what philosophy they had around how they wanted to structure these deals, how large their typical transactions were, their use of debt, et cetera. But with us, I think we're a fairly small deal. Um, so if you look at kind of the typical sizes of their, their deals, we were much smaller than those things. And so my guess is it may have just been a simplicity thing more than anything else. Got it. And the valuation was not, was it, did you ever get any visibility into how they valued the company? I realized that Obviously, they valued the technology and the users and the the, the mm-hmm. IP. Did they ever put a kind of a multiple on revenue or a multiple on profit or any sort of traditional mechanism for valuing you guys? Um, not traditional, but the way that I would think about it is, you know, Penn Foster is such an enormous company in terms of scale of number of users that we'll call it like, I think you can do rough calculations around efficiency of those things, right? Making certain parts of that more efficient, better matching, et cetera, starts to kind of have real value effects because when you just multiply it by the scale. So I think there's probably some of that. Um, I mean, valuations are a very complicated beast, 
And so I, I think it's kind of, there's bottom-up models, there's top-down models, but I think the top-down model is largely based on efficiencies within the current system. And when, you, when you're talking about efficiencies, you're not necessarily talking about cutting costs, but making their no. funnels more uh, Exactly. So, again, exactly. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you've got like a million students and, and you run a, your regular marketing funnel and you get 1% of them to buy a course... That's that's the, the benchmark. And then if you run them through an assessment that says, hey, you should really become an HVAC uh, technician and they buy the course at 8% as opposed to 1%, well, that course, that assessment was very valuable in that funnel. Am I getting the kind of efficiency? Lingo exactly. Right? Yeah. And, there, and there's, there's a multifaceted model to like... Sure. Exactly. You're, you're right to clarify that efficiency does not mean ringing costs out. It means actually like additive in terms of you know, completion rates or anything else. Got it. I know your time is very short, so I want to jump into a lightning round of questions. This can be just a sure. quick, you know, phrase or sentence or a couple of sentences yeah. answer. What is the slimiest trick you've had at acquire or tried to play on you? Oh, I don't, and, I don't acquire know. Acquire could Slime be a master. Uh, we had... I don't know if this counts as slimy, but we had a series of investors actually um, sign agreements to invest. This was many, many years ago and actually pulled the investment on the day of wiring after everything was agreed to. Um, that was the worst. I, I think that was the worst thing that happened is we probably had over 50% of a round uh, not closed the day of closing because people just decided not to wire the money. And, and what was the rationale? I, I don't know. I, I this was a long time ago, and I, I remember having some of these conversations, and none of it made made a lot of sense. But um, yeah, that, that was not fun. If you think about the time window between the moment you signed the LOI with mm-hmm. Penn Foster and the non disclosure agreement and so forth, and the share purchase agreement getting consummated, so if we look at that window, what was mm-hmm. the biggest mistake you made personally in that process? Well, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't actually, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that complicated. Um, personally, I mean, I'm sure I made all sorts of mistakes, but I can't remember any like major things that, that stuck out during the process. I mean, I had built relationships with both of like the, the firm, like I said, I had known for a long time. And so I think a lot of times mistakes come out when you're starting to form new relationships and like, so you don't know each other particularly well. I, I had known these people quite well. And so nothing major, I don't think. Got it. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the same period? Uh, we uh, this happens all the time. We had thought the deal was going to close sooner than it ended up closing, and you know, it's like the whole like happiness is reality minus expectations thing. So it's like you assume that something's going to happen a certain day, maybe it doesn't happen on that day. It starts to drift. And then, like I've learned that lots of times. So, like you kind of teach yourself that things don't close on time and that things always you know take longer, but uh. That was probably it. Highest moment? Uh, I think sharing the news with the team where some of the team had been there for seven or eight years. And, you know, people took a chance. This fundamentally is all about the team, right? So it's like for us, we had people that had taken a chance on us back in 2012, 2013 when we were nothing. And for them to get a check, I mean, the first investor in the company probably never thought he was going to get a cent out of this business. And we, he got a real check at the end and being able to tell him that. Um, you know, it meant a lot. It meant a lot to, that like people had taken the chance on this and had stuck with it. 
and then it all worked out. Did it work out in the way that like, you know, Facebook worked out or, you know, Apple worked out? No, but like that was a very meaningful moment. So someone, again, not about me, it's about, that, you know, their, their experience. If I was interviewing you and not knowing your backstory, I would have sworn you had a Stanford MBA, maybe an undergrad in, in mechanical engineering from you know some major university. And to find out you didn't even go to university is just shocking to me. So I'm only going to assume that you are an incredible self-learning advocate. You strike me as someone who must read a lot. What tactics, tools, resources, books, videos that you use to prepare for this Penn Foster sale? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm both, I guess, uh, try and have low ego and so assume I don't know very much and try and be really stupid when I walk in the room and ask dumb questions, which is, turns out humility is a majorly important thing with getting things done in this world because people find it both disarming because it's, it's earnest but also you you're there to literally absorb from a place of humility i think it matters a lot you just don't assume you know everything i mean i do i try and read a lot at least a book a week in an enormous amount of content in terms of newspapers and, and everything else I and mean, there's a lot of content out there um and so i would i wouldn't say the preparation was any different for an acquisition versus not i've been i've been reading books about private equity deals since i was 20 or 21 years old like i've been and in many ways, people are like, well, what, what a complete waste of time, except when it comes to negotiating certain terms. And you've been reading about these terms and much more complex deals. Like I'm literally reading the, the book about Caesar's Palace and that acquisition by you know, TPG and Apollo right now. Why? Well, I'm not in the casino book? business. I think it's just called Caesar's something. So it might actually just be Caesar's Palace, but it's, it's basically the inside story of how that deal went down. Michael Dell's new book is actually an amazing book at looking at how that kind of reacquisition of VMC, VMware, gel technologies happen very behind the scenes. Like, there's actually books that are pretty transparent about this stuff. People just don't find them that entertaining. And I, I find them fascinating, financial engineering, fascinating too. So, yeah, I just try and read an enormous amount of things and just ask a lot of dumb questions and uh, try and have humility. So, again, uh, just tactically, uh, Caesar's Palace is good. The Michael Dell book is good. Is there any? Is there a third that's more technical? Like if someone wanted a, a real primer on the private equity world, is there a book that you'd recommend? I mean, there, there are literally books on financial engineering, on venture, on private equity. They're, they're very dry. I mean, honestly, like The King of Capital, which is the biography of Steve Schwartzman and the kind of the rise of... Blackstone's fascinating in terms of going. There's like a lot of these books actually go into the nitty gritty of deals. Like everybody talks about like the Barbarians of the Gate book, which is a fascinating book too. Like there's lots of books like that that basically storytell through these deals. And if you read between the lines, you can actually see what actually gets done in these deals behind the scenes. Now they're at enormous scale, so it's different than these tiny acquisitions. But you know the mechanics of human behavior are not that different from deal to deal. I mean the financial engineering is different, the debt structures are different, but like people wanting certain things and certain rationales are, are very similar. So I, I mean, there's a, like a list. I can actually send you a list if you want after. You probably already provided it to your audience, but there's probably a list of these stories that are very useful. Yeah, it'd be great. And we'll put it in the show notes at BuiltTheSell.com. If you've got yeah. it handy, it'd be, it'd be awesome. Sure. Last question. What did you buy yourself as a trophy to celebrate the exit? I bought my parents a house. How'd that feel? Great. It was the most important thing to me. That's all I cared about. I don't care about putting myself stuff. All I cared about this entire time financially was taking care of my family. So that was the, the first thing I did. Did they not own a house beforehand? Uh, I didn't grow up with very much money. So we, my situation is complicated and my parents that are in Vancouver, um, 
The short answer is no. So it was like they never we never had a house in Vancouver. So that was the first thing I did. It's amazing. It's an amazing story, and I want I'd love to have you back when you sell your next company. Uh, it would be great to hear how the uh, the next story ends. I have a feeling it's going to be a success, just as this one uh, is. Um, yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. If folks are if folks are keen to reach out, uh, is there a good place? Are, they, is you, are you a LinkedIn guy or more social media? What's the best place to reach out? I'm probably bad on all those things, but if people say, I mean, if people send me a LinkedIn, I'll, I'll respond. Um, it's probably the easiest thing since it's public. I mean, you can, Twitter's fine too. I can give my email in the show notes if you want. Like I like a version of my email. That's probably easier. Great. And and do you want to give your your new company a plug too for folks listening that want to learn more about that? I mean, I don't have to plug it, but uh, the new company's called Prelude. Uh, we basically, it's going to sound counterintuitive. We actually attack uh, companies in a safe way. We actually mimic what an adversary does against your systems in order to expose and harden your defenses. And we do that kind of high scale. It's a fascinating. So as you can tell, like I have no background in this whatsoever. <laughs> So it's been a really fascinating, going back to my humility thing, um, you know, it's the same process. Like you just learn a whole bunch of new things. Love it. Spencer Thompson, thanks yeah. for this. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between Spencer and John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with the presentation I mentioned at the beginning, go ahead and visit the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you know someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the opportunity to nominate either yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagula for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.